Hey there, welcome back to Great Quarter Guys, the show where the line between freight, finance, and tech are none. I am your host, Andrew Cox, Senior Retail Analyst here at Freight Waves, alongside lead economist Anthony Smith once again. We've got a jam-packed show, a lot of information. We're going to try to squeeze into this next 30 minutes with you. We're going to talk about this ongoing discussion that we've had of what is going on between spot rates and OTRI. That is typically a very correlated and highly uh, highly tight relationship between those two data sets. And we've had a divergence here. It's not the first time we've seen a divergence like this, but it is probably the biggest one we've seen and the, and the longest lasting one we've seen so far. So we've got a few theories on why we think that might be happening. And we'll talk about what shippers are doing uh, that is making this happen. And we're going to discuss it briefly in the chart of the day and then come back to it towards the end of the show. We're also going to talk about ocean rates. They continue to go up. It seems like every two weeks, like clockwork, we're getting a, a general rate increase on the ocean for spot rates. But it's not be, it's not happening because global demand is booming. Uh, so we're going to discuss what is pushing uh, freight rates up on the oceans continuously. And we're going to have the return of the good, the bad, and the Anthony, our economic section. We haven't done that in a few weeks. We're going to talk about job openings. We've got some pretty good news on the job opening side. And then we're going to discuss a swath of partnerships and acquisitions as well throughout the show. So let's take a moment to thank my sponsor, Emerge. This episode is brought to you by Emerge, the digital freight marketplace. While market volatility is affecting everyone, you need an RFP expert to navigate the uncertainty. Industry expertise and technology for your RFP event now and in the future. Emerge from the confusion by visiting git.emerge.com slash gqg. Again, that's get.emergemarket.com slash gqg. Get.emergemarket.com. All right. And also, if you are joining us live, thanks so much for joining us live, either on LinkedIn or on Freightwaves TV. If you are listening to this on a recorded platform, either Apple Music or Podcast, thanks to you as well. Go ahead and subscribe if you like what you're going to hear or like what you hear today uh, to either um, Great Quarter Guys on Apple Music or, po- or Spotify Podcast or subscribe to Freightcast. You can get all of our great stuff from Freightwaves on one tidy feed. All right, let's jump into our charts of the day. Anthony, I will let you go first, sir. Definitely. So my first chart of the day is going to be, of course, around what else? Housing and construction. So up on this chart, we have housing starts alongside construction spending. And so, Andrew, we have housing starts here in the blue line. And as you can see, starts have not yet, even though we've seen reports of increasing and increasing housing starts, we're still not above the Great Recession. I know we talk about pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, but the Great, the, the, I mean, the last recession that we had in 08-09, we still haven't reached the peak yet. So even though we're seeing increasing housing starts, we haven't passed that yet. But we have passed construction spending for residential on on that side. So that's the interesting thing is like once we we usually looked at construction spending for what's going on within the housing market, we usually looked at it as continued activity within flatbed trailers, what's to come or what's going on. But because of elevated prices within materials that's happened throughout 2020 going into 2021, this has kind of become a little bit less of a indicator as to what's really going on, but really kind of showing that separation and that inflationary pressures that's happening right now within lumber and building product materials. Well, that's remarkable. That orange line literally goes parabolic uh, yeah. in 2020 and 2021. So you're saying that, just to, let's just reiterate here, we have construction spending that keeps rising, but housing starts are growing, but kind of growing way more steady than construction spending. And that is a function of prices for commodities, prices for everything that's going into the house rising. That's exactly right. And so this is going to kind of lead into another thing that I think is going on within housing construction. So Census Bureau, they call housing starts really is when construction breaks ground. And so that's when a housing start is really counted. So it's a concrete slab. And usually we look at housing starts and say like, okay, this is going to be indicative of flatbed activity. 
more stuff happening. But now what we're seeing is a delay in actual completions because these starts are began, but there's no actual building products on site. There's no framing material. There's just a slab of concrete here. And so uh, we're going to try to get some uh, completions data in here as well to kind of show the lag in between the actual starts and the actual completions. And I think when we look at that, it's going to really tell the tale of what's happening and some of the nuances right now within the housing market. Tell me we got way too many concrete slabs in yeah. the country right now. Not enough lumber to fill them up and frame them. Okay, cool. My uh, chart of the day is that discussion on spot rates and OTRI kind of diverging. I just wanted to bring it up and show you on screen. So this is for the past year. Blue line, you've got the outbound tender reject index. And purple line, you've got the truckstop.com seven-day drive-in moving average for the national average. That is that divergence. So since about May, you've had um, outbound tender reject index has pretty much tumbled, to be honest. We, we hadn't seen this type of decline uh, in a long time. And it has tumbled from, again, it's still above 20%. It's about 21%, but it's down from 26 27% just two, three months ago. We're going to talk about some of the reasons for why that is, what we believe it is here in a moment. But I just wanted to bring it up on screen as the chart of the day. That will be the discussion here after you care or not. All right, before we get into you care or not, I've got one top story. And I'll kind of make this a, a reoccurring thing if I see them. This is, of course, Freight Alley. So this is a Chattanooga connection is what I'm going to call this mini segment. And Maersk has made a name for itself on the ocean as being still the biggest, large, largest cargo operation out there. Uh, for ocean carriers, but the company is increasingly interested in growing its landside operations. Maersk announced last week that it is acquiring e-commerce fulfillment company Visible Supply Chain Management, which has a network of nine fulfillment centers in the U.S. Here's the connection, one of them, right here in beautiful Ringgold, Tennessee. Yeah. Good old Ringgold. <laughs> Good old Ringgold, Tennessee, just a couple miles here from Chattanooga. Uh, their warehouse network, their Visible Supply Chain uh, management has the ability to reach about 75% of the U.S. within 24 hours and can reach 95% of the U.S. within 48 hours. This adds nine warehouses to Maersk's already 46 warehouse network in the U.S. So about 20% addition to the Maersk uh, network there. Well, the more and more I think about it, the more and more it makes sense of why Chattanooga is Freight Alley. I thought Craig was maybe just kind of hyping it up because of, you know, this is where we are, this is where Freight Waves is, but the longer I'm here the more it makes sense. I'm like, yeah, Craig is right. This is Freight Alley. As you see more and more of these transportation companies continue to kind of flock to this area and how much freight just moves through these highways. Yeah, certainly. So there's an incredible article that was written on Freight Waves about two years ago talking about Freight Alley. And it, you know, it basically tied in Nashville, Knoxville, um, you know, all the upper, upper Alabama, upper Georgia, down into Savannah. And it said 40% of the GDP created in this region is based in transportation logistics. So yeah, it is most certainly Freight Alley. All right, we've got one, one buy or sell today. Uh, it's from you know a recurring, a recurring person we talk about here. It's Deutsche Bank analyst Amit Maratra. So he sat down with Todd Maiden over the weekend, and he, looking at Q2 in the rear view, what has he learned and what is his expectations are for the rest of the year? And Maiden asked him about the driver hiring headwinds. This is certainly something that everyone is talking about. It's keeping the market tighter for longer than some had really expected it to. He asked him how long he expected these driver headwinds to persist. He asked, once consumer demand normalizes, what will recruitment and retention look like then? And Ahmed said, this is more the new normal than the exception. Anthony, you buying or selling that this environment, this difficulty that carriers are having hiring is now the new normal and not so much an exception? I'm buying. I'm buying. Um, I think like all things within the freight market is going to be one of those things that we just have to kind of adjust to. I think this is going to be one of those things that we just have to adjust and kind of build around, and it's going to be a new variable that we have to factor in going forward. Yeah, I, I am buying this, and there's a couple of points I wanted to make. Um, I'll re re repeat one of Ahmed's here. He said, if you take Knight Swift's unseated truckload count today, it would amount to one of the largest fleets in the country. 
which is just, which you know this is a highly segmented market. We understand yeah. that there's only a handful of really really big fleets, um, but a fleet of twenty thousand trucks having ten percent of its fleet unseated right now, it amounts to a massive fleet of unseated trucks. Um, and basically, what the what the, the conversation here is that on the demand side, the, the things that he pointed back to, I'll I'll refer back to the episode that he was on three weeks ago. Definitely go check it out. It's our favorite transportation analyst's favorite um, favorite transportation stocks for the year. And he talks about consumer household wealth. He talks about consumer household debt being at the lowest point that it's been at since the 1960s. And he says that, you know, we have this industrial economy that continues to recover and wake up from this kind of 18-month hibernation. And then on top of that, the, the big point here is that drivers are continue to be sidelined by the drug and alcohol clearinghouse. Uh, fiscal stimulus is keeping them off the, off the road. And the big one that he pointed out that I hadn't really thought of until he came on was infrastructure. People talk about infrastructure in America, they talk about the jobs of, of trucking and the jobs of construction. They're very, uh, they're, there's little barriers to switching there. Um, and drivers will, will go wherever the money is. And if the money's in construction, they will leave driving and go to construction. And he's saying that's kind of an 800-pound gorilla that, that not enough people are talking about, that if an infrastructure bill gets passed, we're probably going to even have more drivers getting taken off the road to go take um, infrastructure jobs. Exactly right. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be the big thing is retention. We always kind of heard driver shortage, driver shortage. And one of the big things that we spoke about here at Freight Waves is retention being a big thing. Now, that's going to be an even bigger thing in the coming uh, years as this infrastructure bill really kind of rolls out and we see what all kind of entails in the final form of it. Yeah, you're exactly right. And one thing that could help with retention down the road is, of course, technology, putting the best stuff in the trucks. And Amit pointed out that if you want a kind of if you want some evidence that that they believe that this driver shortage is going to be lasting, look at all of the biggest trucking companies in the in the country right now. Knight Swift, um, Werner, they are all trying to tie up with autonomous trucking companies, not only because they understand that it's the future, but it can make lot drivers' lives a lot easier, keep them closer to home, make their routes far more scheduled and regular. There we are. All right, let's move on to you care or not. Nah. We've got a few for you today. The first one is a bit funny. I saw this on Twitter just before popping in the show, and I had to bring it up for you guys. Uh, hard Mountain Dew, <laughs> PepsiCo, and Sam Adams, they're going to team up. Uh, Pe Pe I'm sorry, PepsiCo and Boston Beer are teaming up to create an alcoholic version of Mountain Dew. We've got a picture of it if you want to see these cans. They are ridiculous. <laughs> um, Anthony, I know you're not a, a drinker, but if you were, uh, what would this appeal to you? You care or not about Mountain Dew hard seltzer? So, on surface, when you first told me about this news, I'm like, you know what? Good idea. Good idea because hard seltzers are a trend right now. Jump on this while you can. I mean, strike while the iron's hot. We just spoke about last week, or was it two weeks ago, that they just got rid of two brands, I think two or three brands. Yep. Um, Naked and... Uh, yeah, the Tropicana. Tropicana. Yep. So got rid of those healthier-esque <laughs> ones to get into the seltzer market. But I start kind of thinking on the surface a little bit deeper than that. Who are they selling to? Who is gonna, who's going to be the demographic here that they're really kind of targeting for this hard Mountain Dew? Because I know Mountain Dew, definitely popular with some gamers. Um, definitely popular, I think, more so in the South. I think yeah, there's different in the variants South. in the Northeast, things like that, that more people kind of gravitate to. But with this, I'm just like, who are they selling it to? Are they selling it to college kids? Because I don't think they're, they're going on the Mountain Dew, hard Mountain Dew train. They're going to have to compete with White Claws. They're going to have to compete with so many other seltzers. So on surface, I loved it. But then I started digging deeper. I'm like, you know what? I don't know who their demographic is. Yeah, I, I can agree with some of those things. I, I also agree. I don't really care about this one that much. I think the can is, it, it gives me big Four local <laughs> vibes. It just looks confusing, the can. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll say that they are following rivals here. Coca-Cola uh, has come out and they are 
alcoholizing their Topo Chico brand. Mm. Um, Pepsi has also done this with Rockstar. They're trying to make Rockstar beers and Rockstar um, seltzers. I don't like. I don't really like, like like Rockstar like that. So I don't know if it'll be any good. But um, it's a big tie-up for Boston Beer here. They're actually kind of struggling. Their stock sold off like 15% when they announced Q2 earnings last week because they came out and they said that we have completely whiffed on our projections for hard seltzer. They came out and made way too many Trulies, and apparently nobody really likes Truly that much, and it hasn't sold very well. So they've, they're really struggling there. And then the last point I'll make about this is just all of beer had a really rough year in 2020, which is really surprising. So beer consumption was down 2.8% in 2020, but total alcohol consumption was at its highest rate in 20 years. So beer companies um, and, and, also, uh, and also, you know, soda companies are trying to do something to reinvigorate beer. Seltzers are certainly a trend. I think we're having a bubble here where like, you, I, you, you walked into the store two years ago and you saw two seltzer brands. Now yeah. there's only like two beer brands and there's yeah. all seltzers. So a lot going on. I don't well, think that one's going to sell well. <laughs> kind of around your, your angle here about just how it looks, just the branding and the, the can. I don't know if you've seen Liquid Death, but Liquid Death the is water? like the canned water. Yeah. So much of it is just like, I thought this was an alcohol be- like beverage. And so it's just funny that you mentioned that it's giving you four local vibes just based on the can alone. Looking at Liquid Death and some of the other marketing and branding techniques, it's just like, I don't know what's water. I don't know what's alcohol. I don't know what's what anymore. I don't it's know all what's getting good. very confusing. It is. Um, and on the side note, on the on the canned water, I had never seen canned water until this past weekend, except for the one time I saw like old Coca Cola water bottles that were made specifically for Katrina. Yeah. Uh, apparently, they're like huge in FEMA relief because they don't, you know, the heat doesn't mess with them. But in any case, let's get back on track here. <laughs> uh, we've got two uh, trucking startups here that are doing, or not? Yeah, two trucking startups. One is far more established than the other, but. Uh, the first one here is a, is a story that came out that Embark Trucking, they're one of these autonomous trucking companies that is, is doing great things. I really like their plan. They have created a manufacturer agnostic system that, and they've partnered up and done deals with all of the big OEMs to uh, bring an autonomous um, you know, software to their trucks. They have linked up with NVIDIA uh, for computing power. This is something that I think the, the audience doesn't, you know, kind of lets, kind of forgets about how big of a, of a data issue that these companies have. They have enormous amounts of data that they must compute and they can't do it all their own. So they have teamed up with NVIDIA to help them compute some of this power. What do you think about Embark teaming up with NVIDIA? You care or not? I care. I think this makes sense. Um, we were just, I know this is purely from a data standpoint, not actually like gaming standpoint, because that's what NVIDIA is known for. But we were just chatting with a man from um, uh, Kenco Group uh, last, just yesterday, I think on the last episode of FreightWaves Now. And talking about how that mindset is going to really kind of be geared to the future of warehouse management. So not just from a data management standpoint or how to process all this data, but really thinking of the actual job itself and that hand-eye coordination and some of those skill sets that many millennials have been honing in and crafting for the last 10, 20 plus years might be coming to use for actual hard in-person skill usage. But it definitely makes sense. I'm buying. I'm glad you brought up uh, Kenko. Shout out to Christy Montgomery. She, we had a great conversation back uh, during one of our recent virtual events where we talked about just that, uh, yeah. about how we can open up the job market for warehouse workers to people with disabilities, people that can't leave their home, all of these different types of people. Literally, they're going to sit there in front of their TV and they're going to drive remote control, um, re- remote control, you know, what do they call them? Forklifts yeah. uh, around the entire. I think it's a great idea. I, uh, I do care about this one. And the reason I kind of just wanted to bring this up is because you all know that I'm a huge Tesla bull. Uh, Tesla is basically trying to build this themselves. They're building this big supercomputer called Dojo. Apparently, it's like the fifth biggest uh, supercomputer in the world. 
they're going to be announcing a lot more about it on Tesla AI Day next week. So I'm, I'm hoping to get some, you know, some little snippets come out about Tesla autonomous trucks, not just Tesla autonomous cars on AI Day. So I was bringing this, this story up on Embark just to everybody uh, keep an eye out for Tesla AI Day next week. And we're going to learn a lot more about Dojo and their supercomputer. Okay, next one. Uh, a Michigan trucking startup. So this is a really cool idea, and we're going to talk about it here for a moment. They want to test whether carbon capture can be accomplished on a moving truck. The company doing business is Remora, and they've struck agreements with a lineup of huge transportation companies, and they plan to test later this year whether their device that attaches to the tailpipes can accomplish the goal of capturing up to 80% of the emitted carbon dioxide from the truck. Anthony, you care or not about Remora? I care. I mean, it looks like they have some pretty big names behind them. Um, see in this article, Werner, ArcBest, uh, Rider System. So got a lot of momentum behind it. And it'll be really cool to kind of see if this kind of catches momentum. Um, again, just yesterday on the uh, last, not Freightways Now, yeah, Freightways Now episode, we had Danny Gomez and he was talking about biodiesel and transitorial fuel type. So looking at this as another area of potential getting... Oh, Betterment for the environment. I think this is a, a huge one. So yeah, care about this one. Yeah, I care about this one because it's. Um, I think it it proves that this is going to be a long transition from you know diesel trucks to eventually autonomous or eventually electric trucks. There's going to be, as you said, biodiesels. There's going to be alternative fuels. There's going to be hybrids. There's going to be so many things that we can do to cut emissions while we eventually get to um, electric trucks, which could be a long way away. I think this is a formidable idea. I don't know anything about this carbon capture technology. It's. I like that. Uh, I like what they're doing here. This it's based on one of the co-founders' uh, doctoral dis- dissertation from a couple years ago. The co-founders are like 23 and 24 years old. They're super young, and I love the name. First yeah. off, Remora. That is, of course, the uh, the sucker fish that clings on to sharks and cleans them off. Genius. Clever. Very clever. Uh, keep up for for Remora. They've got some huge uh, partnerships already. Okay. Uh, next one is on Amtrak. Have you ever taken an Amtrak train? I have. Was it? What was it like? It was okay. I mean, is, is, if that's what you know, that's great. But if you've been to probably Japan or different mm-hmm. trains in Europe that are actually kind of high speed for real, might be a little bit disappointing. But if it's all you know, it's fine. Okay. Well, the I have never been on one. Um, the only one I'd want to go on is the one that like literally crosses the entire West Coast. And yeah. it takes like two days. It's just a sightseeing tour, more or less. I, I would go on that one. But here is one that Amtrak is trying to reestablish. They're trying to reestablish the Gulf Coast route. They are trying to connect um, New Orleans and Mobile. The Surface Transportation Board has determined that it will actually review Amtrak's request to do this. Previously, CSX and Norfolk Southern, the rail lines that own the rail that Amtrak will run it on, had requested that the application be denied based on what the impact could be to um, a rail of, of cargo routes right there. But the FTB is moving forward with the review process. So first, you care or not about Amtrak uh, reestablishing this service? And then two, would you ever take it? I would take it, but I don't care okay. because it's not a high-speed rail. And I really want high-speed rail. I know it's probably not going to happen in the U.S. The infrastructure probably isn't there. The money probably isn't there. There's probably no incentive for that to happen. But I want high-speed rail in the U.S. I think that's when I would really start caring. Yeah, I don't care about this one either. I would never take this train. I think it would probably take longer to take the train than to drive it or even probably hop on a mega bus or something. Um, but I just uh, this is something to watch is that... The, the, that the Surface Transportation Board is willing to at least review this. They've got a bunch of, they've got a procedural um, schedule laid out. I think they've got to meet things each of the next three months before they even set a time where they'll actually like sit down and review this. So there's a lot that's going to go on in between now and then, but just something to watch. 
Okay, Anthony, this is a conversation that I wanted to have with you because I have found these, because you and I in the past have talked about predatory um, loans and we've talked about consumer debt being really low right now. There's a lot going on here. But Square, uh, one of the biggest fintech companies in the world, they have acquired Afterpay. And Afterpay is a buy now, pay later firm based in Australia. They paid $29 billion for them last week. It's an all stock deal expected to close early next year. It's about a 30% premium to what Afterpay shareholders were getting in the private market. So um, first off, Anthony, just tell me whether you care or not about Square moving into this buy now, pay later space. And then you and I can discuss kind of what buy now, pay later is and what the dangers of it are. Yeah, I care because it's a huge name, a lot of money behind it. So inevitably, I think there's going to be a lot of momentum, a lot of people kind of getting more involved into maybe Afterpay or some of these other similar types of software. So definitely keeping my eye on this one for sure after you brought this one to my attention, because I didn't know about it until you you brought it up to me. But um, definitely this is going to be one I'm going to be watching closely. Okay, I, I also do care about this one. It signals to me that buy now, pay later is going to be, I mean, $30 billion for a company started, I think, five, six years ago. It's uh, This is Australia's youngest self-made billionaire, by the way, the guy that started this. Um, and let's just get into the dangers here, okay? They are doing Afterpay, Klarna, um, Affirm. There's a handful, QuadPay. There's a couple of these companies doing it. Even PayPal has, a, has a released its own version of it called Pay in 4. Apple is reportedly looking into um, building out their own pay now or uh, buy now, pay later system. But right now, there is more or less no credit background checks being happening uh, or going on right now for these things. And Fitch Ratings said that the sector's reporting is really opaque. They don't report the use of its services to credit bureaus. So consequently, buy now, pay later debt is often not even visible on consumers' con- credit file. And you can get huge loans out of this. A firm, probably the biggest one in the U.S., they have up to $17,500 max loan that they'll give. And these are point-of-sale loans. If you haven't noticed when you go to Target or I think even Walmart has integrated one of them now, you will take your TV that you're buying, your $1,000 TV. You'll go to the self-checkout or you'll go to you know the regular checkout. And when you go to pay, it'll say pay $1,000 or use a firm and pay five payments of $200 over the next five months. And that'll be it. You'll be like, oh, well, interest-free loan. I can pay a little bit up front now. I can go ahead and get my stuff today and I can pay it off throughout the months. But this is, of course, just like the predatory credit loans where if you don't make that fifth payment, your interest rate goes to 35% and rises 10% every month after that. So you can quickly spiral out of control and be paying much more than you would have originally And it makes it really simple. I mean, the way that this is built, it's built um, by designers. It is simple application process. You're done in a couple minutes. So it gives consumers this confidence that they're not actually taking on any debt. I don't even think many of these people know they're taking on debt when they're using these services. So I'm very weary of these. I haven't tried any myself, Um, but it is a really good model. You can see why Square went into this. Square's uh, stock popped 10% on the day they went in because the model is more or less this. It's a great model. Afterpay pays up all the money up front. Uh, I think the store gets about 96%. They take about a 3-4% margin on that. Then Afterpay puts out, the, takes on the credit risk and tries to uh, secure that over time. It's a very simple model, uh, but the margins can be good. It can be run like very, not very capitally intensively. Um, but I'm, I'm very weary of this. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I think looking at this, this is going to be one of those things I think probably isn't going to be a a huge issue or concern for consumers in the next month or the next year, maybe. But it's something that's going to add. If you look at the consumer, the U.S. consumer, as a financial fitness, this is something that's cheating on a diet, essentially. Mm. And so if you look at where Americans are financially 
fitness-wise, they're not in a really good place compared to, you know, decades ago where you could buy a house for $10,000 and student loans weren't a huge, a huge deal. So this is one of those things where, you know, typically, historically, U.S. consumers would be able to at least undergo some kind of life-changing event where things were just awful, maybe they got laid off, there's a recession, whatever it might be, they could sustain themselves for at least six to eight months, no problem. That's not the case for a majority of consumers right now. And so when I say that, I'm talking about when things like this happen. Say you have a car loan, you have student loans, you have so many of those little small subscriptions, Hulu, Google uh, Play subscriptions, right. YouTube Park Premium, all these subscriptions that just kind of add up. If you go into some type of lifestyle shift where maybe suddenly there's a huge pandemic or recession and there's not a whole bunch of aid coming in or anything like that, now you're stuck holding the bag or and essentially it's going to be all these afterpay payments, uh, a car loan that they're, maybe they're stuck holding your bag. <laughs> yeah, they're you're stuck holding your bag. And now you're just kind of really messed up financially fit. And so it's not going to be a good situation. So I don't think it's going to be an issue now. I don't think it might be an issue a year from now. But given enough time, given a huge recession or any kind of cyclical downturn, right. consumers across the country will be kind of caught in a bad position if they kind of utilize these haphazardly without making sure that they're in a good financial position. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. We're going to move on uh, now. But that was one of the things that analysts worried about was that this debt may lead to, you know, six months down the road yeah. where they don't they don't have the money to pay it. It might lead them to just use their credit cards to pay, pay this off. And, it, you know, it, it makes a, a consumer credit boom out of this. It's growing really fast, by the way. In the first two months of 2021, it's up 215% year over year, according to Adobe. There was $19 billion spent on buy now, pay later programs last year. That's up from $9.5 billion in 2019. So definitely growing really fast here. Okay, we've got a couple moments here. Let's get to our discussion of the day. We were going to kind of detail some of these theories on why we're seeing this divergence between spot rates and carrier compliance. And as we said, Spot rates and the outbound tender reject index have been highly correlated, a really tight relationship for really the past three years. And our outbound tender reject index has been the best leading indicator of spot rates that, you know, that we have our eyes on. But right now it's diverging. That relationship is, is, is not as tight as it once was. And there's a couple of reasons. So uh, these are from a couple of reasons that we got from our uh, Sultan of Sonar, Zach Strickland. And one of the things we talked about last week was we have this mix shift of length of hauls um, within our app on tender volume index data. It's very fluid and mixes over time. So since March, we've had about a 10% growth rate in tenders of, of loads that are moving less than 250 miles, while freight moving more, hundred, more than 450 miles has shrunk by about 10%. And these shorter loads, have uh, they're just much easier for carriers to accommodate. They can run there and back in the same day or be back overnight, and it doesn't displace capacity the same way that long-haul freight does. And also, the spot rates, you know, while, while we have our tender data is now being kind of uh, more biased towards shorter hauls than it was a couple months ago, the opposite is happening in spot rates. Spot rates are static lanes and are biased towards longer length of hauls. And in the top 100 uh, truckstop.com um, lanes that create that that spot rate average that we have, those lanes are just not typically short haul. They're typically long, uh, long haul. Yep. And I think this is going to be one of those industry changes where everything kind of shifts. And we were just talking about that transitory time between, you know, EVs and autonomous vehicles and why it's kind of imperative that these long haul routes really kind of get implement, a lot of technology pours into it because the data kind of shows that not many drivers want to do these long haul routes. They want to 
get back home at night. And if they can't do that, maybe opt for a whole nother field altogether. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a good lifestyle. No. I mean, having to truck, uh, you know, 48 hours across the, across the country, you're, you're traveling for, what is it, you know, 22 or 24 of those 48 hours. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult uh, life. But the, the one point I wanted to make here uh, about these, so it's analogous to something that we saw a couple months ago in the Savannah, uh, Savannah Georgia market. So on the West Coast right now, we are have uh, shorter hauls that are growing rapidly, uh, but longer hauls are not growing so fast. But in, out of the Savannah market, we have the app on Tinder reject index coming out of the Savannah market is lower, or I'm sorry, is higher than all of the major lane pairings, which more or less is telling us that there's these brand new lanes being created out of Savannah by new freight that wouldn't have been going to Savannah two years ago, but is now going to Savannah and not going to the West Coast. And I believe what, what you're seeing is more of the product that's coming into the West Coast is feeding the West Coast consumption, which is, means it's just not traveling as far as it was a, you know, a couple years ago. And the stuff in Savannah is, you know, people are bringing stuff through Savannah, through Houston, through New Orleans to feed the East Coast uh, right now. So sorry we didn't have more time to discuss that. I, we'll try to bring that back next week and I'll have a guest on so we can really detail that. We'll, we'll bring on Henry Byers or one of our ocean people to detail that. All right. That episode flew by, guys. So that was, uh, there goes our 30 minutes. But we have a great virtual event coming up tomorrow at 9 a.m. We have the Cold Chain Summit. Tune in for a conversation between me and Mark Nelson. He's the CEO of Perishable Shipping Solutions. We talk about how e-commerce and how online grocery is reshaping the cold chain. I absolutely love that conversation. So tune into that tomorrow. We'll also be back next week uh, at same time, 3 p.m. Eastern. So join us then. All right, have a good weekend, guys. See you.